Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. A lot to talk about today. Did you know that it is the birthday, supposedly, of Planned Parenthood? Not that that's something we want to celebrate, but 170 years later, Planned Parenthood is still... I was going to say kicking, but how inappropriately appropriate they're not because they kill babies 107 years later and they claim, they falsely claim that one in four women in the United States have visited Planned Parenthood health centers. We're going to debunk that myth and talk about the horrific legacy that Planned Parenthood has left. And maybe you know someone. I know people who say Planned Parenthood does great work outside of abortion. Is that true? Mm. Not really. We'll dive in that into that claim today on Trending. Planned Parenthood is not pro-woman and it is not pro-child. Also joining me now on Trending is my guest, Katie McCarthy. She's from protectourkidsnow.org, doing excellent work helping to navigate your kids who are in school. We're going to walk through seven questions that every parent needs to ask, asking it to everything from of their kids, of the school system, to know if it is a healthy and safe environment for their children to be in. Because we are seeing across the country kids suddenly identifying as transgender, kids coming out with radical ideologies contrary to what their parents know, believe, and teach. And kids are being pushed toward pornography, among many other things. In the school system, teachers don't always have the best interest in mind of your children. And that's why you, as a primary educator of your kids, because that's what we're called to as Catholic parents, need to be aware of these key questions. So joining me now to discuss this is Katie McCarthy. These seven questions, Katie, I think are great for really helping to make sure children are in a safe environment why did you guys create this? I know we can say from the perspective of gender that it's true, but is this because there's still a lot of kids who are in public school and parents need to be aware? How is this a resource for people? Well, I think one of the big problems is that many parents have no idea because it's such an incredible and unbelievable thing that they're doing in public schools that when somebody comes up to you and says, they're teaching, you know, they're teaching our kids that sodomy is good and you should explore all different kinds of sexual orientations and gender identities and sexual behaviors that most people think that's that's insane why would they do that at school no that it's just not possible Mm -hmm. so by giving kids i mean by giving parents these seven questions it it causes them to think and to ask questions and to talk to other parents too so it's a great starting point to figure out whether or not you're in a school district that has a lot of this woke education I love that you mentioned because we view this as so unthinkable, given how radical these mindsets and ideologies and contents are that are being pushed down kids' throats. A lot of people, because they think it's unthinkable, assume it's not happening. So to actually have these conversations are key. Let's dive into the first of the seven questions. Where do you begin? Okay, so the first question is, does your child's school teach sex ed and or gender theory? 
Now, sex education today is nothing like sex edu- education of the, the millennials or even Gen Z. Um, sex education has been reinvented, and it's now called comprehensive sexuality education, and it involves all the new gender theory. So according to the California Department of Education, and I'm using them because they were the, they're the pioneers in this, um, it has three goals, or actually five goals. Sexualize children beginning in grade school, separate biological sex from gender, erode values and undermine parental authority, and advance the SOGI, which that's S-O-G-I, sexual orientation, gender identity, worldview in all K through 12 public schools. Wow, it's undermining parents enforcing a radical ideology that's so dangerous for children. So this is just kind of that baseline that if this is happening in your school system, it's not something that you can protect your kids from. What should parents do to know if this is something that's even avoidable that they can opt out of? Or when is this a huge red flag that you need to turn in a different direction in terms of education? Well, anything that you opt out of is going to have very narrowly defined limits of opting out. And what what the people who are trying to remake our education system in order to indoctrinate new generations of young Americans, what they're trying to do is weave it through everything, not just the sex education and the gender yes. theory and the critical race theory, all of this, so that it almost becomes a part of the vernacular. It's a part of the vocabulary, the language, the the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, history, so to- English, all of it. They're putting this into history lessons. They're changing even just the type of English literature that people are reading. And I've heard testimonies of 15-year-olds and the things they are expected to do for assignments and read out loud in front of their classmates is pornographic. It is. There's there's downright pornography. In fact, um, CECUS, that, that's... Um, S-I-E-C-U-S, and it stands for Sexual Information and Education Council of the United States, they are the self-appointed sex education police. And basically their goal is to get comprehensive sexuality education, which is gender theory, in all 50 states. So if you go to their website, you can see whether or not your state has has comprehensive sexuality education. And it will it will explain to you all the kinds of legislative activities and pressure they're putting on those states that do not have it yet to try to get it in there. So mm-hmm. you might be lucky. You might be in one of these states where it's it's not mandated, like Florida, um, but it's still it still creeps into places like that through basically federal government bribes um, mm-hmm. from the Department of Education, like like grants, COVID grants, hundreds of billions of dollars were sent to schools for safe reopening. And you would be surprised at what a lot of the details are in there Mm -hmm. um, and how that's supporting and pushing forth this agenda. And I really appreciate that you make it clear, even if you're able to opt out out of certain maybe guest speakers on sex ed, it's intertwined into history, literature, you name it. I'm going to link on my social media and in the episode notes, we're going to find this here to a testimony given it's a video recorded of a mom who read the assignment of it was either her 15 or 17 year old daughter and it was assignment that had to be given and read in front of the entire class it was outright pornographic and what was interesting is that in the school board meeting they actually shut off her microphone because it was so inappropriate they wouldn't even allow her to speak yet they expected 
her minor to be taught this, learn about it, and present on it. So this is key. And I think it was in even some sort of literature class. I can't remember. We'll post a link to that episode I did. Let's touch on two of the seven questions that parents need to be asking of their school-aged children curriculum and of themselves. Okay. The the second question is about critical race theory. Does your child's school teach critical race theory? And critical race theory uh, spreads the idea that American culture is racist and that white people are racist and oppressive. And it essentially teaches racism. It creates division, victimization, hate, um, guilt, and despair. You know how we have the LGBTQ alphabet of the gender theory? Uh, Critical race theory has its own little alphabet soup, and it's BIPOC, which is Black Indigenous People of Color. So students of color are told that no matter how hard they work, they will never achieve the success of their oppressors, while white students are told that they must confess their privilege and atone for their racism. It's the complete opposite of Martin Luther King Jr.'s judge people based on the content of their character and not on the color of their skin. Mm. And it also erases a lot of the history, as you mentioned early, because they they want the Americans to be unpatriotic, the new Americans. We're creating mm-hmm. generations of new Americans who are embarrassed of our country. They're not patriotic. And they don't love America. And that's very dangerous, but that makes them get their agenda through a lot easier. And this ties into the gender crisis that kids are experiencing because kids are learning that maybe I'm someone who's white and I should feel bad and I should punish myself. And they are engaging in self-harm. They're engaging in identity crisis because they're being told it's bad to be me based on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and critical race theory. So this is a key question for your kid, even just understanding themselves as well, not just others. What's number three? You know, it's funny. That was a good lead-in for number three, because number three is about social and emotional learning. And social and emotional learning is a form of replacement parenting, where the government, operating through the public school system, they assume the role of the parent Mm -hmm. in the teaching Mm -hmm. of values, ethics, decision-making, self-management, so the inventor of social and emotional learning is uh, an organization called CASEL, C-A-S-E-L. And they're a nonprofit funded by donations from people like Bill and Melinda Gates and the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and others with, with an agenda. And um, CASEL's, in their own words, on their website, they say SEL, or social and emotional learning, is the process through which all young people and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills, and attitude to develop healthy identities, manage emotions, and achieve personal and collective goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain supportive relationships, and make responsible and caring decisions. Now, I don't know about you, but do we really (laughs) want our educators dictating our children's values and beliefs? And, Mm -hmm. And who defines the collective goals and responsible and caring decisions? The same people who insisted on depriving our children from attending public schools due to COVID are now citing the very mental health issues that you were just explaining a few minutes ago to justify providing mental health and using COVID reopening money to do that. Um, So they're, they're all in favor of counseling in public schools, but the problem is they delve into very personal and complex issues with your children. And they're not, they're, they're not trained in mental health and they don't probably don't people doing this probably don't have the same values that you do. 
And I think that, as you mentioned this, it's all about parents being the primary educators of their children. And this, at the core, is taking away that responsibility, which ties into the fourth question, having to do with what parents have access to in terms of curriculum and even the library. Talk a little bit about this fourth question. Yes, um, libraries, particularly new new school districts, new new schools, new libraries, um, the last probably decade or so, uh, they purchase their books usually in bundles. So they have to all of a sudden buy thousands and thousands of books. They don't read every in screen every single book. And we have a tool on our website, protectourkidsnow.org, where you can look up uh, various materials in your school's public library. And in fact, I've done it for a couple of Catholic schools in Texas and, you know, K through eight and have found uh, a number of problematic materials involving transgender stories and lesbian relationships in K through eight young adult novels. So it's really, you know, I brought it to the attention of one pastor and he said he was on it and I trust that he, he Mm -hmm. is, but that, you know, I, I never thought that he would even know that it was there. And I'm sure he didn't. I think mm-hmm. these things are getting snuck in yes. through grants, federal government grants going to big book publishing companies. And they're encouraging these public co- publishing companies to start creating this material for young adults. Because, you know, since the passage of the Obergefell Hodges Supreme Court decision in, uh, when was that, 2015, That requires that all 50 Mm -hmm. states recognize same-sex marriage and they recognize it across state lines. So this paved the way for, well, now we have to, every kind of sexual orientation and gender identity, you know, needs to be affirmed and you can't discriminate. We need to kick heteronormativity to the curb, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is what the special interest, that's even in there. I believe that's one of Planned Parenthood's uh, slogans, k- mm-hmm. kick heteronormativity to the curve. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they really have an agenda to try try to change the entire landscape of, of, of the human race, really. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's true. And I'll give a ex- simple example of this. I had read a novel or a, um, I guess, fantasy novel series for teenagers because I find a lot of the Young adult or adult content has a lot of inappropriate content. So here I am trying to enjoy this fiction in a youth-based novel series, and it was full of pornographic content. I wasn't just having to skip words. I was having to skip paragraphs, end up skipping chapters, eventually just completely gave up on the book. And then I remember a couple months later, I saw one of my clients at the Pilates studio. Her son came in and he was reading that series. And I went, oh, brother. And so I mentioned something to the mom, said, hey, I don't know if you vet this book, but I actually read it and it had a lot of inappropriate content peppered throughout the entire thing. Actually, that's kind of this erotic version of a relationship was at the core of the story. And mm-hmm. she was horrified. She looked at her son. She said, is there anything inappropriate in that book? And he turned red and she just looked and she <laughs> said, we'll deal with this later. He got it at the school library. So in other words, what you're saying about school libraries, even in these seemingly innocent, fun, adventure, fantasy books, there's content that 10 and 11-year-olds are consuming and when you talk about gender when we expose kids to sexualized pornographic con- pornographic content so young it's leading to sexual addictions and sexual exploration that is so harmful for children and for other children one of the most common forms of sexual abuse today is actually child on child and this is That's part true. of the reason why mm-hmm. 
Okay. Uh, number five, I'm going to move on, is the, um, does your child's school personally conduct personally intrusive student surveys that violate mm. student and family privacy? And that's an interesting one because these surveys come from the federal government. So, you know, they get passed down through various levels of bureaucracy before they, they get in front of your children's eyeballs. And everybody just kind of waves them through and sort of assumes, well, since it came from the CDC, uh, it must be okay. And they're called um, youth risk behavior surveys. And schools are strongly encouraged to have their students take these. And I believe they're, I suspect there's grant money associated with that. I've never, I haven't researched that, but I will. Um, I've seen a, a number of these surveys and they ask very invasive mm -hmm. questions regarding personal sexual activity, how many mm -hmm. times, how many partners, how many, how many hetero, how many homo, drug and alcohol use, uh, gunshots, weapons, personal information in the home, mm -hmm. all kinds of questions involving a number of dysfunctional and disordered activities. And the funny thing is, if you're a kid and you're reading, you know, how many times have you had sex in the last year, you know, 4, 12, 38, 109, and you're a virgin, you're thinking, wow, am I supposed to be somebody who's doing this all the time? You know, so it's, it's, it's really, it's another method to normalize this kind of behavior and to desensitize the kids to something that should be so special. And so, mm. you know, it's, God created it for a completely different reason. And I'm seeing as well with these questionnaires, it's also vetting kids and parents against each other and being used against parents. So in these surveys, it'll include things such as, well, what, how does your parent respond to this? Is the parent affirming of this particular behavior? And for example, exactly. in California, we just saw, thank God, Governor Newsom shockingly um, vetoed a what would have been a law that was sent up to him through the legislator that would lead to custody battles where parents could be considered unfit if they don't affirm a child's gender identity if it's mm -hmm. opposed to their sex. So this is key because it can be used in custody battles. And we've seen horror stories of this in Canada where parents are actually being imprisoned for disagreeing with their kids' sexual behavior today. And you don't have to be in California to be a target of this. I, I lived in California for 24 years, and I moved to Texas in 2020 with my family. And I can tell you that it's it's here. If anything, it's a little more dangerous here because a lot of the parents have a very false sense of security because they think, oh, not not in my Texas. That that would never happen here. And so the battle that began in around 2017, 2018, we're trying to wake everybody up and say, hey, we've mm -hmm. passed this California Healthy Youth Act law, and they're starting to teach this very dangerous stuff in public schools. It took a while to wake people up. They just didn't want to believe it. And, you know, COVID was a, a benefit for that reason alone because of all the Zoom school mm -hmm. that was going on. Yes. But, um, you know, I'm starting that all over in Texas. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned this because people often comment, Tim, are you glorify California? No, I don't glorify California. I love my home state of California. But what I recognize is that what starts in California goes across the country. And a lot of people have thought that's just in California. It's in Ohio. It's in Tennessee. It's in Florida. And this is why we have to fight against it. And I use California as an example sometimes of the blatant extreme in your face content that is being pushed that's often silently and subtly being pushed in other states and people don't know it right but a positive side california is starting to have some wins and yes. Yes. so all the other states are way behind the curve so you know i'm hoping that california 
you know, there's a lot of really brave people there fighting very hard um, against these these terrible um, indoctrination measures being mm-hmm. put into public schools. And we're starting to see successes in the courts and yes. in the school districts and at the school yep. board meetings. And so, you know, if if what starts in California spreads everywhere, then I'm I'm rooting for California. I love it. I love it. And I do believe very much so that this is why Governor Newsom vetoed a bill that he very much so would have agreed with with regard to all of the um, ability for parents in custody battles to lose their children. It wouldn't hold up in the courts and it also would have turned a huge population, the migrant population in California against him because they see him as one who could take away their children. And many people in the migrant community have a religious worldview that upholds maleness and femaleness. So wouldn't hold up in right. the courts. And I think, again, a huge win for California among many mm-hmm. others. If you're just joining yes. me now here on Trending, that's Katie McCarthy. She's from Protect Our Kids. She's the spokesperson. And we're working through seven questions you should ask your school-age children, their schools, or make sure that you know the answer to to make sure they're in a safe environment free of harmful ideas and behavior. So we're on question number six. And by the way, if you're just joining me, we're going to post a link to a download of this. You just have to plug your email in from protectourkidsnow.org and you can grab this handout. It's just a couple pages, really easy to walk through. Let's touch on the sixth of these seven questions. Okay, so the sixth question is, does your child's school recruit students into extracurricular clubs that are ideological or political in nature? And this is really interesting because, you know, that it seems pretty benign, extracurricular clubs, but there are GSA clubs. GSA stands for Genders and Sexualities Alliances, and they're across the nation in high schools and colleges, and they develop their own, as I mentioned earlier, they have their own vocabulary. So... The, you know, the new worldview comes with words like turf and cisgender and gender fluid and non-binary, uh, dead name, glitter moms. Do you know what a glitter mm-hmm. mom is? Yes, yes. <laughs> a fake mom who will embrace anything and everything you want to do and identify as. Right. And will help your friends uh, yes. go against their parents to identify they want to identify as well. Uh, it's it's dangerous stuff. But if, if you talk to a kid who's been in a GSA club for any amount of time, you're going to feel like you're talking to somebody from another country because you're not even going to understand what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's almost like a code that they speak. And that actually is really smart on the part of the architects of this whole agenda. Because mm-hmm. when you can change the language and change the definitions and come up with your an entire new vocabulary, it makes it a lot easier to get to, to make it cool and pull kids into the cool club. So mm-hmm. um, the student-run organizations that unite, this is their own definition of who they are. They're student-run def- organizations that unite LGBTQ+, and allied youth to build community and organize around issues impacting them in their schools and communities. So if you're not, if you, if you don't have one of the letters of the alphabet, then they're going to have you explore that a little bit more. Are you sure? Maybe you're Q, maybe you're questioning, maybe you don't know. And if you're firmly heterosexual, then they're going to pressure you into becoming an ally. And your job is to protect those who are in the other alphabet letters because they they are a special class of people that need extra protection from bullying, from increased levels of suicide, from all kinds of um, you know harms, and that's that's what that 
allied thing is for. They really Mm -hmm. take advantage of the goodness of young people and make them feel sorry for a class of people and then teach them that, oh, it's good to be inclusive and tolerant. And when a lot of times it's not good to be, if you really love somebody, you're not going to tell them that they make a terrible woman and they should try being a man. That's not love. Mm-hmm. And uh, parents are not being informed if their kids are in some of these extracurricular programs and school clubs. They're hiding rosters. Teachers are hiding rosters from parents. So this is a key question because this might be where your kid is learning ideology you had no idea about. Okay, in the last of these seven questions, what do people do about opting out? I know this is your last question that I think is a key decision maker. Well, I I would suggest you go to our website and get more information because the laws are different in every state. And um, in California, if you opt out of sex education, you can only opt out of biology and reproduction, but you can't opt out of anything that involves sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, any CRT stuff. Uh, it's, It's impossible to get away from it. Probably the only thing you want your kid to learn is reproduction. <laughs> That's the one thing you can opt out of. So um, it, opting out in places like California, it's kind of uh, a fool's errand. But if you're in a state that does not have comprehensive secu- sexuality education, you should see what your opt-out laws are and find mm-hmm. out what they're teaching in your schools and opt out of as much as you can. Um, and hopefully those those states will stay that way and they won't go Mm -hmm. the way of California, but go the way of Florida instead. And I'll add a caveat to this. Don't assume these are questions that should only be asked if your kids are in public school. They should be asked if your kids are in private school, Catholic or not. They should be asked if your kids are in charter schools because a lot of schools even if they're private, are receiving government funding and are being uh, forced to engage in certain curriculum still. So this is a key conversation to have no matter where your kid is going to school. ProtectOurKidsNow.org is the resource. I'm going to post a link to where you can get this questionnaire that parents, you need to be asking if your kids are of school age to make sure they're safe in a healthy environment. Uh, If you want to learn more, what other resources could you briefly mention that you have there at protectourkidsnow.org, Katie? Uh, Protect Our Kids, we have um, toolkits for parents, teachers, pastors. Um, We can help teachers get out of the teachers' unions. We can help pastors create small homeschool setups in their parish halls. We have the threats, the evidence, the solutions. We have podcasts and videos and brochures. There is so much information, and I would suggest that you go to the website, you get this back to school questions every parent should ask, and you print out several copies of it and start sharing it with your, your school age children's friends' parents and say, hey, let's, do you all want to go to a, a school board meeting together? Because if you get the, you print out the agenda prior to and you all know what they're going to talk about, and you come up with uh, a, a stance that you all agree on, on something that they're bringing up, then you can, you know, there's power in numbers. There are yes. definitely power in numbers. That's Katie McCarthy, spokesperson for Protect Our Kids. You can find their excellent work and resources at protectourkidsnow.org. I'm posting a link to this seven-question error. It's a two-page, easy-to-use to implement. Thanks for being with us, Katie. We'll be right back to talk about issue one in Ohio and truth about Planned Parenthood as they celebrate their 107th birthday. So, what's trending? 
bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I want you to hear the ad that is being used for issue one in Ohio. If you're not aware, in the state of Ohio, they are preparing in the coming weeks and early voting is starting. Uh, they are preparing to actually vote on whether or not unfettered access to abortion will be implemented into their state constitution. And I'm not just talking about abortion through all nine months of a woman's pregnancy. I'm talking about no parental notification or permission for a minor. I'm also talking about unfettered access to cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers, and so-called bodily... (laughs) I can't even say it. This is just insane to me. Therapeutic body treatment and plastic surgeries that are actually just bodily mutilation. So I want to start here with you listening to this excellent ad that's running there in the state of Ohio against issue one. My birth mom was a scared teenager when she was forced into a late-term abortion. Because of a doctor's mistake, I survived, but my twin did not. I was left broken and hurt. Late-term abortion is real, and so is the pain. But the pro-choice industry wants it right up to birth. Abortions that are too late, too painful, and too extreme for Ohio. Will you stand for victims? Please say no to late-term abortion in Ohio. Catholics are called to vote no on issue one in the state of California, even if you're on the fence with regard to the issue of abortion. It's extreme. It's unfettered access to abortion through all nine months of a woman of a woman's pregnancy. Last week, I received a scathing email that abortion is not legal anywhere in the United States through all nine months. And I talked about that and debunked that claim yesterday. I think because we ponder something as unthinkable, we'd like to say that It's unreasonable to even think it would be a law, that it's not. Joining me today to talk about issue one in Ohio and the call for Catholics to vote no, or if you're pro-life to vote no on issue one, is Mary Rose Short. She's the regional field director for volunteer door knockers there in Ohio, and she packed her bags up from California to help influence the vote in Ohio. Really admire what you're doing there in Ohio. What's the latest news on issue one as we're just weeks away from the vote? Yes. Well, thanks for having me, Timory. The early voting started yesterday, so we're going to shift a little bit. Up till now, we've been trying to reach uh, voters in the middle, voters who don't necessarily have a strong opinion about abortion, and just uh, get to them with the information about how extreme issue one is. Now we're going to, because of the limited time left, we're going to have to shift more towards voters who we think will agree with us and just make sure they get out to vote. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the polling shows. It's kind of down to the wire. I don't know how much we can trust polls anymore, but whatever evidence we do have from polls is that it's it's a very, very close race. So what could you take away from that is that your vote does matter. This is the fourth opportunity in the last year where we will see people voting to legalize abortion, to ratify into their state constitution. That's why there needs to be a no vote on issue one in Ohio. If you have a friend, call your friend up. And guess what? You don't have to be in the state of California, I mean Ohio, to help. You can be in the state of California, Florida, New York. Tell us how anyone can be involved in preventing this radical pro-abortion implementation to the state constitution that would kill more babies and harm more women. We are currently working on door knocking in Ohio. We are going door to door with lists of 
middle of the road voters, voters with, that there's not a lot of evidence anyway that they're pro-abortion and informing them about issue one. And we do it in the form of a couple of questions um, about whether they support certain extreme aspects of issue one. And we find that over 70% of the people we talk to confirm by the end of the conversation that they will vote no. There's also phone banking. We want to follow up with people, both the people we can't reach through door knocking because they live in more isolated areas or we just can't get to every house because it is time consuming. We are doing phone banking to reach those people as well. And then especially as we go through these weeks of early voting, we're going to be following up with people who have confirmed they're going to vote no and just make sure they go to the polls. And we'll get lists as people have voted. So they'll, they'll drop off our list and we that's one way to make sure you stop getting phone calls about how to vote is if you do early voting, then you'll stop getting bothered. Um, and it also saves the campaign money if you vote early and it guarantees you won't show up at the polls and find someone else voted in your name as long as you vote early enough. <laughs> so, so there are a number of benefits to voting early. Um, and that's, yeah. So phone banking can happen from anywhere in the country. Excellent. So phone banking. And if you're in the state, be sure to get out and knock. It's really easy. We talked about last week here on Trending. You just need the app. You get the list and you get out on the streets and start knocking on doors. And if it's the first time, go with someone. They actually train you, have hands-on training for volunteers. That's what I love. If you're interested in getting involved, you can learn more at createdequal.org forward slash issue one. That's createdequal.org forward slash issue and the number one. I'm posting a link on social media as well as in the episode notes that you can find for this podcast at the end of the day. And I do want to mention briefly, if you have experienced an abortion, this is a moment that I love to be Catholic because we have an incredible sacrament of reconciliation. You can be healed by the blood of the lamb. There is no sin that is unforgivable. And there are also great resources for hope and healing after abortion. So please look at supportafterabortion.com. That's supportafterabortion.com. Maybe you know someone who's had an abortion. Use that resource. Pray to your guardian angel, and the Holy Spirit to help lead you to an opportunity to share this resource with someone who's desperately in need of healing from abortion. Can you tell me, Mary Rose, and if you're just joining me, Mary Rose Shorts, the regional field director for volunteer door knockers, who's there in the state of Ohio working on issue one, which we've been asked as Catholics to vote no on. Can you share with me a little bit about how the conversations are going on the streets as you go door knocking? Well, we run into a lot of people who are actually confused about what issue one is. There was a special election back in August over another constitutional amendment that was also named issue one. So people have the two confused in their minds. So a lot of what we're doing is just clarifying what this issue is actually about. And then people confirm their vote no. We talked to some people who are confused because generally conservatives were voting yes on the last one. And now they're supposed to vote no. And so we run into people who think that it's a yes vote this time as well, and then are grateful for the information. And we run into people who just say, I'm just so confused. Can I talk to you um, and ask you some questions about this? I had one uh, gentleman yesterday who came to the door. The TV was going in the background, and he was kind of wary at my questions, and he didn't know which, which way I was going. And that's part of that. We, we do ask open-ended questions or, or questions that don't necessarily say what we're thinking because we're asking them. We're informing them about some aspects and then ask what they think about it. And it became clear he, was, he wanted to vote pro-life, but he thought that yes was, was the correct vote to vote pro-life. 
And he told me, he's like, well, what you're telling me is not what I've heard on TV. Yep. Yeah. And it was interesting because their ads must be working, the pro-abortion ads, mm-hmm. to confuse people because they've done some very clever ads showing families, showing American flags, showing people. Yep. I was in the state of Michigan last year during the campaign, and it was interesting to see because there in the state of Michigan, they were actually working to do the same exact thing with the state constitutional amendment, and the advertisement was extremely misleading. No one knew what they were actually voting for. Some people even thought that they were voting for restrictions on abortion. They had no idea how extreme it was. And Mary Rose, if you're with us, you mentioned that people are confused. They're very grateful for the clarification. That's why these questions, when you go door knocking, are very open-ended, non-intrusive, and really lead to the opportunity, which is the great way to dialogue, to help the other person come to their own position on this issue for whatever their greatest common pro-life belief is. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of, we actually find a lot of common common ground with people who are pro-abortion to a certain extent, but even people who are pro-abortion and don't have a problem with, with late-term abortion, or I shouldn't say that most people are uncomfortable with the late-term abortion, even if they say it shouldn't be regulated it's kind of the personally pro-life position. And a lot of, you know, they say I'm personally pro-life, but, but I wouldn't tell someone else what to do. A lot of people say that through all nine months of pregnancy. But what's interesting is, so we tell them about abortion through nine months and ask what they think about that. And then we tell them about the way it would strip parental rights and ask what they think about that. And that is really interesting because people have now been, been kind of brainwashed into thinking opposing any form of abortion is very bigoted and judgmental. And they, so they're, they've been trained not to, they, they, that they shouldn't say anything against any abortion anytime, but parental mm-hmm. rights, they're still allowed to, to be reasonable on that. And so a lot of people will say, well, no, that's crazy. When we tell them that it would give minors the right to any reproductive health decision on their own, without any restrictions, without parental notice. And so even people who have told us they do not oppose abortion at any point during nine months of pregnancy, we'll turn around and say, oh, actually, now that I know that about parental rights, I'm going to vote no. So thank you for telling me because that's crazy. And it really is a neutral vote. By voting no, you don't put any additional restrictions on abortion. So even people who are pro-abortion can get behind voting no on issue ones, which I think is key with what you're sharing. A lot of pro-abortion people do not support issue one once they actually know. This is why we need to get the information out there. CreatedEqual.org is a resource. Check out CreatedEqual.org forward slash issue the number one i'm posting a link on social media as well as in the episode notes i'm so grateful for the work you're doing mary rose they're working with created equal to lead the campaign against issue one let's talk about planned parenthood so they are celebrating you actually told me about this earlier today their 107th birthday and in their campaign they are talking about how they practically help every woman in the united states and they have this inflated incredibly inflated false number claiming that Planned Parenthood essentially helps treat one in three women in the United States. I balk when I see this because I do know that a lot of people turn to Planned Parenthood as a resource, but I also know a lot of people, even people who are maybe on the fence with regard to abortion, give a wide berth to Planned Parenthood because they know of their association to abortion. Yeah, well, I just couldn't get past the irony in the first part of them doing this big celebratory, it's our birthday, um, 
announcement that mm-hmm. Planned Parenthood can't see the irony with that celebrating a birthday. Um, but yeah, just just their wild claims about how many people they they supposedly serve. If you break down the numbers at all, it doesn't make sense. Um, but mm-hmm. they can just mm-hmm. get away with claiming claiming anything, and and people fall for it. And I haven't run the most recent numbers, but the bottom line is is that Radiance Foundation had a great piece of literature on this, and they actually broke down the population, broke down the numbers, because it was back in about 2016, 2017, that Planned Parenthood claimed one in four women went to Planned Parenthood in the U.S., and now they're claiming even higher number of one in three. I don't know how they get this number because they are not seeing more patients than they did five to eight years ago. They're actually seeing fewer patients. And even with those numbers back in 2016, 2017, the Radiance Foundation just did a simple calculation of math and the statistics coming out of Planned Parenthood. And back then, we saw that less than one in 40 women depended on Planned Parenthood for their health care. And so this is simply not true. And again, this is a reason as to why is it that they're receiving billions of dollars, that is Planned Parenthood from our state government, when they don't even give basic medical care at Planned Parenthood. They don't do prenatal care. They, on rare occasions, maybe on a single day of the week, just so they say they can do mammograms. Last I knew, I actually think they stopped all mammograms, I know, in the state of California. So they lie. They're all about killing babies, and that's the bottom line. Mary Rose, you're on the front line. You are having a lot of conversations with people. What is the pulse with regard to Planned Parenthood today? You know what's interesting now that just as you were talking about that, I realized I have not talked to anyone who brought up Planned Parenthood, and I don't know if that's just an ask, I mean, just while door knocking here in Ohio, and I don't know if that's because in Ohio, Planned Parenthood might not be as praised as it is, as highly regarded as it is in other parts of the country, like California. In California, every every pro-abortion, every Democrat politician knows that you bow down to Planned Parenthood, and then you get lots of votes. Here, I wonder if it is more of a dirty word, because I haven't talked to anybody who said you know, as part of their justification for being pro-abortion or part of their, you know, trying to show me how pro-abortion they are, because we do run into people like that. I haven't had anyone say, oh, I donate to Planned Parenthood or I went to Planned Parenthood or anything like that. So it's interesting. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and I the think, regional thing. Yeah, and it is interesting, too, because Planned Parenthood's roots are eugenics. I and mean, just look up, we'll post maybe some links on Margaret Sanger. We don't, we'll talk about Margaret Sanger tomorrow. She's a founder of Planned Parenthood, because I think it's important, you know, if you don't, uh, they focused on impoverished communities and migrant communities. And so even just thinking about Planned Parenthood often to the common person is kind of like an association with Planned Parenthood is serving a community that's underserved, but serving them to kill babies. They have a reputation. So no one should be proud to talk about going to Planned Parenthood. So I do think that's interesting that you mentioned it's just not being mentioned. So share some news, the truth about Planned Parenthood as they celebrate their 107th birthday, yet they deny millions of babies their birthday and moms the warm and joyful day of welcoming children into their arms. If you've had an abortion or know someone who has, supportafteraborton.com is that resource. And again, just information on issue one to vote pro-life. It's a no vote on issue one in the state of Ohio to get involved in the campaign even if you're not in Ohio, but if you are, I really hope you're involved. Go to createdequal.org forward slash issue one. That's the number one. We're posting out on social media. Thanks for joining your Mary Rose and for all the work you're doing on the pro-life front. We'll be right back here on Trending to talk about the resurrection. What does it mean for the fulfillment of the body at the end of our lives? 
if we go to heaven. We'll talk about that in just a moment. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. A friend of Father Rocky's once asked him to visit a dying acquaintance in the hospital to give him communion. But was his friend even Catholic? In a simple half an hour, everything changed. Hear this conversion story. It's incredible in our Eucharistic Encounter video series. You'll deepen your love for Christ in the Eucharist. Sign up for free for this video series at relevantradio.com slash encounter. That's relevantradio.com slash encounter. And speaking of encounter, we're getting ready for the Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis this coming July. Relevant Radio is offering easy, family-friendly travel experience thanks to Nativity Pilgrimage. Let's show up for Jesus together. Find more information about travel packages at relevantradio.com slash encounter. That's relevantradio.com slash encounter. Let's look at our Theology of the Body series this week. Today and tomorrow, we're talking all about the fulfillment of the body. What's the purpose and final function of our bodies in heaven? It's actually a pretty incredible section of Theology of the Body. Today, we're talking about talk 64 through 69, if you're following along, and it brings some interesting questions to mind. What is the fulfillment of the body? Did you ever think there was one? Are you just living life, functioning day to day, following every women desire? What will our bodies be like in heaven? Do you ever think about what the resurrection of the body is? Pope St. John Paul II in Theology of the Body poses a view of the fulfillment of the body in heaven as a body and soul union. And I'll tease out what that is a little further. In the beatific vision, we understand that we're united with God. We experience the vision of God. Totality, we're consumed in the totality of our body and soul with the fulfillment of all our desires and understanding of purpose. We're living out our purpose in God. It's more than we can even imagine living that beatific vision in heaven. So this week's section of Theology of the Body that we're focusing on has to do with just that, the resurrection of the body, living with God in heaven. Fundamentally, God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. So often we put a lot of weight on death, fear of death, avoidance of death. I've seen a lot of my friends lose children to miscarriage or at a young age. And time and time again, I have these conversations with friends who, as they're mourning the loss of their children, and we remind ourselves of that faith-filled perspective of how we are called to be saints. We are called to live life in heaven. And what a beautiful thing, although it is mournful for parents here on earth to celebrate the life of a child still preserved in their innocence. As they die, especially prior to the time where their innocence can be destroyed. And it brings to mind, again, that understanding that we are made for heaven. And while we are living now, death is what is necessary to enter into the glory of God and enter into that beatific vision. We can be alive in Christ now. We can live in a state of grace And we should be. That's part of what I love about Pope St. John Paul II's work. He believes and knows we can be saints here and now. 
in the fullness of the human person, we see that the vision of God is lived out. See, Irenaeus actually talks quite a bit about this. There's this quote I love, and I'll paraphrase it. It's, the vision of God is man fully alive, and man fully alive is the vision of God. And so we're understanding ourselves in the light of God. Formative to shaping this anthropology of theology of the body that Pope St. John Paul II has been talking about are the words of Jesus Christ about the resurrection. And so today and tomorrow, we're going to hone in on a conversation Jesus has with the Sadducees. You can see this in Matthew chapter 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20. I'll post an excerpt of this inside the show notes as well for today's show. Now, if you don't know who the Sadducees are, the Pharisees are the people that are very focused on the law. Sadducees are the ones who, the joke goes, they're sad because they don't believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees try to catch Jesus in asking him a question in these chapters of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They pose the example of a man who dies, and when he dies, His brother marries his wife, and that brother dies, and so on and so forth until all seven brothers are deceased. And the question is, basically, okay, you're talking about the resurrection, Jesus. If there's such a thing as the resurrection, although those aren't the exact words, but he basically says in heaven, whose wife would she be if she was married to all seven? Now, they're appealing to a tradition from Deuteronomy where if a a man dies, his brother marries her marries the wife, and raises children in his brother's name. And so they're posing this question to Jesus, if each dies, whose wife is she in the resurrection? And as it goes, it's actually fantastic to walk through this entire narrative because Jesus comments, it is not, is not this the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they take neither wife nor husband, but are like angels in heaven. He goes on to say, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the story about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Here we see Jesus is emphasizing first belief in the power of God to raise the body and to fulfill the body far beyond the human natural law and function of the body that we understand in terms of the generative dimension and marriage. Also, we have to acknowledge in what Jesus is saying that life does not end with death. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all living persons for God, as Pope St. John Paul II says. In other words, our fullness of our life is meant to be in heaven. Marriage ceases in heaven. Do you notice that? We'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow here on Trending. The vocation and mission of marriage as a path to holiness ceases because we have lived that earthly sojourn. So don't make up your own ideas about God or the resurrection like the Sadducees did. The resurrection of our bodies is dependent upon the order and perfect will of God. We're going to talk a little bit more about what it means for our bodies to be totally fulfilled in God in heaven as Pope St. John Paul II draws out this wonderful anthropology of the human person in the theology of the body. I'll be back tomorrow. Be sure to join me. What will you do to celebrate Halloween this year? This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Friday, I'm going to discuss what is Halloween. It's actually a Catholic holiday, so let's keep it Catholic. However, we have to be aware of occult practices. 
also discuss Fatima and the resurrection of the body. Do you ever think about your body in its resurrected state? Join me Friday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.